Playoff time is when things start getting serious on the court. Players are more driven than ever to win these big games and keep advancing. Goodyear knows all about being more driven, too. Working hard to help you advance on and off the road. Let Goodyear.com help you choose what's best. One thing that I've never heard before, because obviously, like, I reach out to you guys every now and again, like, are you available this time? Are you not available this time? And Mondays are normally Cassidy, Chine, and Ramona. And Ramona is out of the country. Cassidy is apparently, like, booked up the entire day, much like McMenamin for whatever reason. But Chine has given a first in my short podcast producing career, which I think would be very difficult to top. Uh, she's like, uh, I can't make it because I have a preseason game to play. <laughs> <laughs> Hard yeah, to get that's, out pretty, of those, uh, that's pretty big time there. That's so funny. It's Monday on the Hoop Collective. I'm your host, Andrew Hahn. Joining me for at least a couple of more hours from Salt Lake City, we have Royce Young. That's right. And possibly a couple of more hours as well from Philadelphia, we have Ian Beckley. Yes. I think it's done tonight, by the way. Ooh, okay. We're going to put a pin in that. We'll get back to it. First things first, uh, the Cavaliers are up 3-0 against the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. LeBron had a ridiculous running, like, 18-footer off of one leg bank shot to seal game three. Uh, Royce, let's start with you. What went through your head when you were watching that game wind down? It was clearly an accident that he that it hit glass. He didn't mean to do it. LeBron James is, isn't that the isn't that the correct isn't that the take you're supposed to have here? Um, I've seen I've seen that take around. Um, it's a by bad a certain one. So and so. I mean, look. The, the, first of all, I I was among those skeptical when the Cavs didn't advance the ball. I don't know how you guys felt about it. But I was kind of like I've I've seen Oklahoma City's done that with Russell Westbrook before in the past, and I and I get it in theory um, because you know you can try to get the ball in to a guy with you know speed, athleticism, size, all that stuff. You let him kind of get a running head start, and so I was kind of like, okay, I, I you know I understood what they were doing, but like what was it, Andrew? Like two weeks ago, LeBron literally hit a game winner. Granted, there was a lot less time on the clock against mm-hmm. the the Pacers, you know, but but they had advanced and you know it was kind of a catch and shoot situation, but. You know, I, I feel like it's a little easier to trap and try to keep the ball out of LeBron's hands if you don't if you don't advance it. So that was a risky decision, I thought, by Tyloo, but obviously a, a brilliant one because once the ball's in LeBron's hands, then the Raptors are scrambling, and you know they were able to get Ananobi on him, which is I assume what they wanted. Um, but like LeBron clearly got the shot that he wanted. I mean, like as as high a degree of difficulty as that shot was, which like seriously on a scale of one hundred, that degree of difficulty on that's like a ninety eight and a half. I mean that that is like running to his left off balance. Also, the elevation he got on that, like the the screenshots and pictures I've seen of it, just like everything about that shot, his like legs are crisscrossed. <laughs> like it's just it's seriously one of the most insane shots you'll ever gonna see. But um. I mean, like, I, I got to give it up to Ty. I think, you know, LeBron, obviously, he deserves, he deserves like uh, 94% of the credit, but Ty, Ty Lue deserves like 6% just for, uh, for the, uh, the guts to not advance that. 
it's one of those things where it, the decision not to advance looks brilliant after the fact, but we would right. all be killing Ty Lue if, if it didn't work out. The, the, the question I have, though, with, you know, Dwayne Casey is like, there are things you could do there to try to keep it out of LeBron's hands going into the play, and they failed to do that. And I'd be kicking myself if I was Casey and if I was a Raptors fan after that sequence. But in a bigger picture sense, it's just I, I, I hate to kind of like sound like too much of a fan, but how can you not in this situation because of just what we're all seeing here? I mean, this is his his fifth career uh, postseason buzzer beater. And he's the only player in the last 15 years with multiple buzzer beaters in the same playoffs. So just to see what he's been able to do in these last two series, it's just been incredible. And I hate to get into the, the Jordan and LeBron debate because I think, the, you know, that stuff, while it's fun, kind of fodder for discussion, it's it's uh, relatively meaningless at this point. But just the idea that we're seeing this this one player, the singular force in the league, rise head and shoulders above the rest of the league on this stage, to me, it's just been it's been so fun to watch. You made the point, Ian, that I think is kind of interesting, though, just in terms of like the whole advancing thing again. Is maybe that's part of the the genius of of not advancing? Is it caught? Is it uh, caught Dwayne Casey and the Raptors off guard? Right. <laughs> you know, maybe they were right. like, "Wait a second, like what happens here?" And and no, I'm yeah. not saying that I think LeBron like like the play was like, okay, LeBron, you're going to go up court, you're going to cut left, and you're going to take like the like most insanely difficult shot as <laughs> you can possibly. I'm not saying that that's like the play that was designed. I think the play that was designed was the balls in LeBron's hands, and he gets to do something with it. Right. The, the yeah. play, the play is yeah. to trust LeBron to figure something out. Yeah. yeah. Like get it, Which get him the ball in call. some kind of level of space, and you know, I I I do wonder. Like it almost like kind of looked like it when LeBron like was going into the shot motion. It was almost kind of like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, uh, but no, I but mean, like knows. I think that the the whole idea is get it in his hands and just like let him do something awesome, which he clearly did. So successful like, play. To your point, Royce, when you're talking about the pictures that show the separation, I think he knows if he gets ahead of steam and and he he uh, single covered, he knows he's going to get enough separation to get a good look at the basket no matter where he is. And yeah. clearly he was able to do that on that shot just looking at those pictures. I mean, you mentioned it. He was at the apex of his jump, and Ananobi, I don't think was – I think he was still on the floor to try to contest the yeah, shot. I feel like- he had a clear look at the basket. I feel like on second spe- spectrum that ought to go down as an uncontested jumper <laughs> because of the separation on that. Yeah. So I think like in terms of not advancing the ball, uh, I want to say Casey said that like one of the things they wanted to do was try and double LeBron on that final position, which they weren't able to do. Royce, which goes to your point of like uh, yeah. um, if you have the full length of the court and LeBron has a head of steam, it's hard to kind of trap him or try and get the ball out of his hands. It's like if you don't, keep him from getting the ball. Like once he has the ball, it's, it's over at that point. But uh, I don't know if you guys seen, have seen the phantom cam footage that the NBA released on that final shot. Like it's from the baseline perspective of the shot that the cow, the hoop that the Cavs are shooting on. And you can see the second that he gets by Ananobi, like LeBron's eyes dart towards Ananobi and he can see that he's ahead of him. And then there's like a faint grin that shows up on LeBron's face. It's like, oh, I'm uh, that's awesome. Like I can get the shot <laughs> oh, off. Like it. no one's going to stop it. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, Ian, you cover the East, uh, day in, day out because you're based in New York. Uh, it's, this is a question I've been grappling with ever since the Cavs took game one and then game two, obviously now they're up 3-0. Were the Pacers better than we thought they were? The Raptors not as good, or like the Cavs just, you know, did the 
the April Cavs thing of just flipping the switch and all of a sudden now they're the Kings again. I think the Raptors are a better team than what they've showed in this series. It's just been confounding to me to see how this thing has played out. Uh, it's, it's really insane. Uh, but I think if you look back at that first round series, certainly the Pacers are a better team than the general NBA fan out there gave them credit for because, you know, they did what they did against the Cavs and, you know, they have a very nice young core and they're coached extremely well. So I think that team flew under the radar by and large most of the season and was able to show on a national stage exactly what it was. But this, this Raptors thing is confounding because this is not a good, I would, I'll say this. This is not a great Cavs team. I think we all know that it's extremely flawed. And you would think based on the way the regular season played out, that this Raptors team had enough to, at the very least, expose some of these flaws and, and make this a competitive series. And the idea that it hasn't been that at all is just truly bizarre. And I don't know how you view this if you're the Raptors going forward, how much you factor this in, this total collapse into what you do this offseason with your personnel. But it, it's truly confounding to me that this has played out the way it has. And it's funny because... Coming into the season, everyone thought it was a foregone conclusion that it would be uh, Cavs and Warriors. And it looks like, you know, who knows what's going to happen with Houston, but it looks like that's what we're going to get at the end of the day. But, you know, there were some, especially in the Eastern Conference, there were a lot of uh, of moments of indecision and a lot of moments where you thought, okay, the, Toronto's going to be the team now or Boston's going to be the team now. It's not going to be Cleveland. Uh, throughout the course of the season and in the playoffs and it seems like we're going to get what we thought we were going to get in uh, on day one once we get to the finals here one of the i hate to be the guy that asked this annoying question but i feel like this raptors Cavs series like it begs you to want to say is this where the raptors are losing the series or the Cavs winning the series because like we're all celebrating like what lebron has accomplished because he's you know the, the the game two with all the fadeaways the buzzer beat in game three everything that has been remarkable but it does feel like the Raptors are more responsible for what's happened here than the Cavs are for like going out and taking it from them. And, you know, in game one, you know, Valanchunas misses like 13 or 15 or 25 or whatever it was, tips at the rim. They <laughs> didn't execute whatsoever. I mean, how, I, I don't remember what it was, but they missed, you know, a certain number of shot, consecutive shots down the stretch. Um, then, you know, in game two, they just didn't show up. And to me, that was just, that was indicative of what everybody has made fun of them about for for so many years is that just mentally they just got broken at that point and then game three you know i thought that the raptors the raptors played hard enough to win that game they you know Dwayne casey made a tough call benching demar Derozan, um which i i don't even know if that was necessarily the right move but look they tied the game up with eight seconds to go like they were in position to win that one and uh you know they showed some heart and they showed some fight but the problem was that they lost two games on their home floor and they were in a position where um, they could just get crushed by the swift hand of LeBron James. So I, I don't know if this and, and it, you know, Kevin Pelton talked about it on the last podcast, Andrew, where it was, you know, uh, this is going to kind of put to test a lot of the things that we think that we know about regular season statistics and what they try to tell you about what you, what's pre, uh, predictive in the um, in the postseason. And this series is really blowing that up. I mean, the, you know, the Cavs were a terrible defensive team throughout the regular season. The Raptors' margin uh, net rating was 
you know, what it was, the offense, defense rating, all those things. It just, it doesn't matter. And I think the only reason that it doesn't matter is because the best player in the world is on one side and he is so significantly influential in a series that it, it doesn't really matter all that stuff. Um, does this series go back to Toronto, Ian? Mm, yeah, I, I have to think that it does. It, right. The Raptors get a game here, right? And, and, and get it back there because it, 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 I mean, listen, the way that it's gone so far, I would, I would, you know, it's logical to think that this thing is done uh, in game four. But given the, the profile of the Raptors, this is not a, a young team on the postseason stage for the first time. This group, its core has been through uh, many playoff battles. So they're playoff tested. They know what they're getting into. And I think just the the idea that there's not this significant talent gap leads me to believe that at the very least, this Raptors team has to get one game. Uh, but, you know, Royce, you talked about the idea that, that what we see in the regular season, particularly through the prism of this series, isn't as, as relevant or predictive as we thought it was in the postseason. You know, I, I think a lot of people had Ananobi as, you know, a potential LeBron stopper based on what he'd done in the regular season and based on his profile. Uh, that obviously has not been the case in the playoffs, but the numbers are pretty astounding. I think LeBron is, is, is shooting 65% when guarded by this poor kid, um, <laughs> including, I think, 67 when Ananobi actually contests his shot. Uh, which actually second spectrum has that that game winner from Saturday as a contested shot. I think Royce would uh, uh, would disagree with that, but it's just yeah. unbelievable. I test. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I test there for sure, but it just it just speaks to the idea that you know what we see in the regular season. Uh, you know, not that we have to throw it out the window, but that we certainly we can't base uh, all of our predictions and and everything that. Uh, that we talk about in the playoffs on, on what we see in the regular season, because certain when they're great players on the stage, some of that stuff gets thrown out and it just adds another layer to the conversation, both about regular season versus playoffs and about just LeBron James and, and, and what he's able to do when the lights are brightest. Doesn't it feel like the Cavs are do a dud though? That's why I kind of agree that I feel like it does go back to Toronto. It just yeah. feels like the Cavs are do a dud. Yeah. Just be, of of who they've been throughout the season. I guess it's just a matter of are have the Raptors quit or not. If if the Raptors have decided not to quit, I think that they they can easily win Game Four. Yeah. So uh, I will say though that after Game Three, uh, Casey had a bit of a slip in his post game comments where he said uh, Raptors have one game left to try and <laughs> try and get it together. Uh, so let me let me ask you guys. So there's been conversation about this. You know, Dwayne Casey, by some accounts, might win Coach of the Year, right? Like, ballots mm-hmm. have been cast. I know a lot of people voted for him. But, like, is his job on the line here? Because I, I personally don't think so. I think it would be kind of ridiculous to fire the guy after such a successful season. But, um, you know, playoff disappointment is really – it can make, can make uh, front offices do rash things. So is, this, is he at risk? Han, what do you think? You jump on that one first and have some thoughts. Uh, I I do not think he should be at risk because a way if you don't change a roster dramatically, but the way that you play changes dramatically in the span of one season. I can't even remember the last time a team had accomplished such a feat. And then on top of that, to enjoy as much success as they have, there's something about this Raptors team that reminds me of those uh, 
uh, early teens Mavs rosters where they just kill people in the regular season and just kept on coming up against uh, playoff heartbreak over and over again until they finally broke through against, uh, what was it, 2013 against the Heat? Um, and there's something to be said about... 2011. 20, oh, 2011. Yeah, 2011. Right, right, right. Um, there's something to be said about continuity and just trying to uh, incrementally improve around the margins. Um, the Raptor team, uh, like you said, Ian, it's, it's really good. And there's no reason just to make dramatic changes when you've already done the hard work at the beginning of the season already changing the way that you play. Totally agree. I mean, continuity to me in this instance is so important because if you're trying to dissect uh, who's most responsible for this Raptors team being where it is, yes, it's Kyle Lowry. Yes, it's DeMar DeRozan. It's the development of Valanciunas and all of that. But Dwayne Casey has played a major, major role in this. And, and the idea that the, the players have been responding to one voice for the past few seasons and dealing with the same assistant coaches for the past few seasons, that's, that matters. And, I, you know, I cover the team, a, a team in New York that switches coaches every two seasons. And that's, you know, part of the reason why they haven't had any success. I think continuity is so important. So this, is, this to me is not an instance where you fire the head coach. And I, you know, there's been similar conversations in Philadelphia with Brett Brown and oh the idea gosh. that the Sixers, you know, were supposed to beat this undermanned Celtics team and things have gone sideways and it's gone uh, completely opposite to what the Sixers fan out there hoped. But, the, the idea that Burt Brown should now lose his job because of uh, some miscues and mistakes over the course of this series against the Celtics is beyond absurd to me. I mean, this is a guy who has weathered some incredible storms in Philadelphia, has done it uh, with class. He, he's developed uh, guys like T.J. McConnell, Robert Covington into successful rotation players. He's He's held a group together amid, you know, just some horrific seasons, and he's gotten this team to – the point at where where they are now, where they look like they have one of the brightest futures in the NBA. So now you want to get rid of the coach and have someone else come in and steer the ship because of a bad three game stretch in the playoffs. To me, it makes no sense. And I know some some front office front offices and owners might be that reactionary, but I think successful organizations see this for what it is and really really value the idea of continu- continuity. Over, over making a rash decision and changing a head coach due to some lack of playoff success here. It's just such low-hanging fruit in my mind to immediately, when a team has a disappointing series or whatever, just to say, fire the coach. It, it's like, it, it, to me, basically what, what, what I'm hearing is you're just saying that you're not really thinking about anything else. You're not like looking at it rationally. You're not stepping back and giving any level of perspective to anything happening in front of you. You're just saying fire the coach. Like you just you're just not looking at it um, because whether it's Dwayne Casey because like you said it, Han. Like the the fact of of what the Raptors accomplished, they had a they had an awesome regular season. And yes, I know it's regular season. And to so many people, when you're frustrated about what's going on in the playoffs, that doesn't matter to you. And like you can't tuck 59 uh, regular season wins under your pillow and sleep well at night when you're getting swept in the playoffs. I understand that. But like the Raptors did accomplish something very impressive this year, and there's, you know, if it, and I think the, the the main question you ask yourself is like, okay, so who do you hire? Who's better? 
Who, right. who do you go get and who comes in and that you can say, I guarantee that things are going to get better than 59 wins than, than Dwayne Casey or with Brett. I mean, the Brett Brown thing, Ian, I, I've, I've heard some people suggest that as well. Brett Brown may have made some mistakes in the series, but like the idea that you fire Brett Brown is one of the most, like I was thinking about it this way, not to switch series here, but so like we've all, I kind of made the joke on the last podcast about like, the, the Celtics are basically equally as young as the 76ers right now, right? And so people are looking at the 76ers and they're saying, like, how could you lose to this Celtics team? When w- Brad Stevens is doing an awesome job, and I, I, we all are bowing down at the altar of Brad Stevens. But let's not sit here and act like the rosters are completely different. Like, Brad Stevens is coaching the number three overall pick. And what was Jalen Brown the number two, was he number two or no? Nah, I think four? he was he was definitely top ten. I don't think he was whatever. He was he's a high level lottery pick. Mm-hmm. Terry Rozier is a first round pick. So and he's got Al Horford, who people don't want to accept is a super good, excellent all star level player, but yeah. he is. So like, let's not sit here and act like Brad Stevens is coaching just like a bunch of nobody garbage time players. Like he's basically coaching a very similar roster to what Brett Brown's got. He's got Joel Embiid, who's a young player. He's got Ben Simmons, who's young. He's got Saric, who's young. So like, it's comparative here. These are not just trash players. Brad Stevens is rolling out there, and he's just got a mind jinx over Brett Brown, and Brett Brown can't do anything about it. Like, it's uh, they're they're kind of similarly talented teams in uh, going up against each other. The idea that Brown should lose his job over this thing is is incredibly rash, and it's. I think it's a product of just frustration from this fan base. And I'll agree, Royce, about the, you know, the rosters being similar. I just think what hurts Brett here, and it's obvious, is you know, the idea that the Sixers rolled through the heat in the first round, right. got past them in five games. And then, you know, if you're a Sixers fan, you're looking at this Celtics team as getting by Milwaukee in seven games, being significantly depleted because of the regular season injuries, obviously with Kyrie and Gordon Hayward, but also you had Jalen Brown hobbled and not playing in game one and and you were rested. And it seemed like the Sixers were really primed to get past Boston and then take on either Toronto or Cleveland in, in the conference final. And I think that was the mindset of not only people on the outside, but people on the inside with Philadelphia. I'm not saying that they dismissed the idea that, that Boston could beat them in a series, but I don't think anybody saw uh, getting down 3-0. And, you know, it's it's certainly disappointing. Um, it, but, you know, there's there's no reason to get rid of Brett Brown because of, because of this. I mean, he's done an incredible job to get them to this point. I think that outweighs anything that can happen either tonight or that has happened in the past three games. So let's just, I think, you move past that if you're a Sixers fan and you think about, okay, well, what what else can happen this summer to improve the roster? Can Ben Simmons learn from the mistakes that he's made against this Celtics team and come back a better player, which I think is you can you can bet money on that happening. Um, can they can they adapt the offense to fit Joel Embiid's post ups while also you know taking advantage of of what they can have on the perimeter thanks to Ben Simmons creation and their perimeter shooting i think that that can also happen so there are ways this thing can improve many ways that this thing can improve in Philadelphia without having to fire the coach yeah hey Royce have you been getting sun baskets I have. It's been this pleasant surprise where every now and then they just show up on our front porch and it's this big, awesome cardboard box. And uh, 
my wife will send me a lot of times I'll be on the road and she'll send me a text and be like, man, this is, this is sweet. I just got dinner taken care of for me for the week because that's her, that's one of her greatest struggles when I'm traveling is that like, ah, crap, I have to, uh, I have to cook dinner. (laughs) Uh, Your lovely wife and her home dinner plans is very interesting. I want to get back to that, but I also just thought of something where I don't know the answer. So I'm going to solicit your advice. Is it, do I say that you got your sun baskets or is it a sun basket basket? That's a good question. That's actually like, it's a really existential question that I don't know the answer to. So, uh, back to your, while, while, while we sort that out, listeners, Let's ponder that. Yeah, at Royce Young, at Andrew Lahan, let, let us know, is it sun baskets or sun basket baskets? Um, yeah. What, what kind of meals has, uh, has your wife been sharing with you? Uh, well, I was home for the other day, and we had um, – it was like a turkey, black bean, avocado, some kind of bowl, like, you know, like kind of like a like a chipotle type bowl, you know? Okay. like, And it was like – it was literally like out, absolutely outstanding. And the – and I'm – and I know like I sound like a total sunbasket stand at this point, which is funny because like as of like three months ago, I'd never had one before and never even really heard of it. And now it's like <laughs> I'm a sunbasket stand. But – she was like, I'm going to make us lunch real quick. And I was like, okay, cool. And like, I was, I was actually legitimately, this is like a hundred percent honesty, shocked and how quickly that was put together. Cause I, I figured it'd be like, oh, okay, like, you know, I'll be eating lunch. She's got to go cook my lunch. It'll be 30 minutes. And it was, it was done and ready in like 10 minutes. Uh, do, are we, so you're giving credit to Sunbasket for that, not your wife? Uh, oh yeah, I guess I could. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I, I mean, Sunbasket's great and all, but let me clarify. (laughs) Score points there. Do you know which which package you guys have been getting? Because I know that there's like several different kinds. Yeah, there's paleo, there's gluten-free, lean and clean, vegan, Mediterranean, family options, and more. I honestly don't know which one they were. I'm thinking that the last one we got was probably uh, maybe Mediterranean? I don't know what that would have been. I don't know. I don't know what else was in it, but... uh, we, we just had the one. I just – she probably cooked uh, one or two of them while I've been gone. But um, maybe we should have her on to do the ad read. I, I mean has there been anything that you've had from some basket that you're just like, you know what? This is this is not great. I thought it was actually going to be really – I was so excited about it. But I, I think it was more my personal preference. It was like a uh, it was like a rice and something with like mole. Isn't that how you say it? Mole? Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't like mole. It's official. It's like chocolate. It's like weird. I don't think that that's. I, I didn't like that that much. Um, now go back and do it again. Where you're like, I love mole. Mole is my favorite thing. <laughs> Every single thing that some basket sends is amazing. <laughs> I've never disliked anything that I've gotten. I eat it all, and I'm excited to eat it, especially when I get the mole ones. <laughs> mole is my favorite. Go to sunbasket.com slash hoop today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash hoop, H-O-O-P, for $35 off, sunbasket.com slash hoop. been with the Sixers throughout the entire playoffs and I think there was more than a reasonable number of people like you said that thought the Sixers were going to get by the Celtics 
given the injury situations, given the way that the first round played out, what, why, why is it the way it is right now? It's funny because Brett Brown said the other night, um, yes, this shows me that our, our young players are going to be young sometimes, but I don't want to use youth as an excuse. But I think essentially he was saying that, yes, youth has played a, a role in, in what's going on here. Uh, particularly in that game three, when you look at the mistakes that were made down the stretch, uh, the, the turnover with JJ Reddick kind of throwing the ball into, to no man's land when it looked like there was miscommunication on a, on the, the rhythm of a play that was late in regulation that allowed Boston to, uh, take a lead, excuse me, tie a game. And then, you know, there were mistakes late in overtime where the Sixers youth was just exposed. It was Ben Simmons gathering an offensive rebound with 19 seconds to go with his team up one, immediately taking a shot rather than pulling it out and getting fouled, and then a turnover uh, basically to end the game where Ben Simmons' inbound pass was picked off by Al Horford. So there, there are instances here where the Sixers' youth is showing and the inexperience is showing. And, and you know, right or wrong, I think the accepted, accepted narrative is if you're an NBA team and you're young and talented, you have to go through some growing pains in the postseason before you can reach the finals or before you can, you know, win a title. I think we've seen that again and again where talented teams get to the playoffs, have a little bit of success in the playoffs, but stumble and learn from those mistakes and from those struggles, struggles and come back stronger. And I think that's what we're going to see in Philadelphia. But I understand the disappointment given the context of, of where the Sixers were and the opportunity that they had in front of them. I just think that what we saw in this series was the moment being a little bit too big for young players like Ben Simmons and, and Joel Embiid to a lesser extent. And we're seeing these players, you know, make mistakes on this stage. Those mistakes are magnified and you're seeing why the Sixers are down 3-0 heading into game four tonight. Yeah, it's not like they've gotten run off the court though. I mean, games two and three were coin toss games, and like, um, and 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 I think that to your point, Ian, it's what people have to like kind of step back and realize is that Brett Brown and the 76ers raised the expectations, obviously, kind of to their own detriment. Now, considering where things stand, by going into the postseason, winning 16 straight games, by winning mm-hmm. what did they end up with? 54 wins, I think. I think 52. 52 wins. But yeah. Like they if if this Sixers team was on the timetable that most of us kind of thought they would be. Look, coming into this year people were still kind of on the fence whether or not they were a playoff team, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, and so here they sit and it's like, wow, this team should be in the NBA finals, how dare you. And right. like and if you rewind a lot of that Sixers fan base, they were probably saying, "Man, just getting in the playoffs, that's a great season. That's a win." And so, like, if this Sixers team had kind of lived up to just, like, what a lot of people's expectations were preseason and won, like, 43 games and gone in as, like, the 7 or 8 seed and played a really competitive opening round series against the Raptors or or even the Celtics in the opening round, and it was, like, a 6 or 7 game series, people would have walked away from it going, wow, that's a really great year. It's just the fact of, like, they rate – like, they the – the expectations got raised because of how quickly this team came together and it's kind of unfair. Um, but look, this team has got a chance to be really good for a long, a long period of time. I mean, this is a, this is a core of players that if, if nothing reactionary or irrational gets done, 76ers are going to be back and they're going to be good next year. And playoff disappointment breeds, uh, 
you know, a hunger to get better. So I, you know, there, and there's a lot of room for the Sixers team to get better. Like you mentioned, Ben Simmons, he's got a, as good as he is, he's got a lot of personal development to do. And I mean, a lot of it. And, and to me, that's like an exciting thing. If I'm a Sixers fan of thinking of like Ben Simmons is already like super good. And he's got a lot of room, a lot of clear, obvious areas that he could get better in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pose one hypothesis that I would like you to confirm or refute in the Sixers fans should not be chanting trust the process anymore I don't understand why they're saying that like trust the process Sam Hinkie signed I think a six-year deal when he went to be the general manager of the 76ers and left three and a half years into it I think so like there's a lot of good moves that were made and this team looks like it's built for the future but it's not really the, like the owners didn't really trust the process and this roster is kind of on a, an accelerated timetable, not exactly the way that Hinky probably would have played it all out. They did one of these uh, trades this past offseason that no one really thought would have as big an impact as it did now between Fultz and Tatum and things like that. Uh, we, we, they need to think of a different, a, a different uh, slogan. For the Philadelphia 76ers. <laughs> I love the thought process, Han. I'm going hard refute, though, because <laughs> this is this is the result of the process, right? I mean, whether it's exactly the way things would have played out, played out if Sam Hinkie were still running the show or not, which I agree with you. I don't think that, that this would have happened exactly in this fashion. But the idea that they are where they are, second round of the playoffs, looking like one of the the top, the top teams in the NBA going forward, certainly in the Eastern Conference going forward, that's what Hinky wanted. That was his ultimate goal. Um, so I think there's an emotional attachment there. I mean, yeah, we can dissect whether this is actually um, what was supposed to happen under Hinky and how it, if it was how it was supposed to happen under Hinky. But the the emotional attachment I think is real. The idea that hey, we've watched this team you know, win 10 games. We've watched this team lose more than 55 games for four straight years. We've hung in there and we've hung in there through this so-called process. And now here we are. So I totally understand the, the emotional attachment to the idea that we're going to chant that very loudly in our home building. Now that we're watching playoff games, but to, to just talk about a little bit, the, uh, the Tatum Fultz thing, the, the idea that, uh, that Fultz is kind of, dead and buried or a bust at this point, I think is, is way too premature. Listen, we can dissect the trade, right? We can talk about whether Colangelo you know, made a huge mistake in, in not selecting Tatum. And I think that's all very fair. And especially the way Tatum has played for the Celtics team, particularly in the second round. I mean, he's been fantastic. He looks like he's going to be an incredible player in this league for a long time. But to me, that's not, you don't look at that and, and say, okay, well, Markel Fultz, you know, is going to be a bust. Forget about him forever. I don't think that's the case, particularly because of what he showed in those last 10 games of his, his rookie season when he came back from that shoulder injury. Uh, he put up pretty good numbers, and the last game of the regular season, he actually recorded a triple-double and became the youngest player in NBA history to do so. So now we're in the playoffs, and Brett Brown is going with T.J. McConnell ahead of Markel Fultz as a backup to Ben Simmons. And I can see the general NBA fan out there saying, 
wait, this is the number one overall pick, and he can't get minutes over T.J. McConnell. But if you look a little bit closer, Brett Brown's decision is based on what's happened throughout the course of this season. Uh, uh, Fultz missed 68 games because of that shoulder injury, and McConnell played incredibly well, played an important role for a team that won 51 games in the regular season, won 16 straight to close out the regular season. So Brett Brown sees that, and he sees the physical nature of the playoffs, the intensity of the playoffs, and the idea that, you know, McConnell has 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 much more experience than Markel Fultz, and he goes with McConnell. McConnell plays well. So I think the decision needs to be looked at through that prism, through the idea that McConnell gives the Sixers the best chance to win at the moment, but certainly not through the prism that because Fultz is not playing in this series, he's a bust, and there's no way he's ever going to make an impact in the NBA because of this three-game stretch here or whatever. So that's my rant on Tatum Fultz because I've seen a lot of stories and a lot of takes on on Fultz based on these DMPs and I don't think it's fair or accurate. I do think though Ian if I wonder if the 76ers knowing what they know knowing about Ben Simmons as a full-time point guard if they could go back and do it all over again <laughs> you know. Right. So that's the totally indictment fair. on the front on the front office. No one would have known Ben Simmons's potential as well as the Sixers front office and yet they went ahead and traded up to draft Markel Fultz, who plays the same position. Like, you basically have to say that Fultz not only is going to be like an all-star level um, caliber player, but an all-NBA caliber level. If you're going to get a guy that plays a position where you already decided that you're going to put the ball in Ben Simmons' hands, that's the part that seems crazy to me. Totally fair. And that's, to me, that's, you want to bang on Brian Colangelo for that? That's justified and fair to get into all that. I just don't like the idea that, that Fultz to totally dismiss his NBA career based on this right. little stretch is silly, but I, I hear you. Like, and I think just from afar, my, my read on it, just based on what Brett Brown has said a couple of times and what has been said about the decision to play Ben at point guard was, I think Brett Brown was all on board with playing Ben Simmons at point guard. And, and maybe there was some resistance to that in other corners of the organization. And, and maybe because, not everyone was in lockstep with the idea of, of playing Ben Simmons at point guard. Maybe that's how you ended up drafting Fultz. I think that's just a kind of an educated guess, and and that's that speaks to the notion that it's so important for ownership, president, GM, coach to be on the same page with everything because if that's not the case, then things can kind of go sideways in these, these high-level decisions, and maybe that's what we're seeing a little bit in Philadelphia because even if you want to play – Markel Fultz or Ben Simmons off the ball and you want to put them in the same lineup, you need shooting in today's NBA. And neither of those guys right now has shown that they can knock down an outside shot with any consistency. So if you want to play them regularly together, I don't think there's enough shooting between the two of them to make that an effective lineup. And I think you're seeing some of the limitations of Ben Simmons as a full-time point guard in the series as well. So like to your point, Ian, maybe I can see maybe there were people within that front office that kind of feared some of the issues that you're seeing right now. And, but again, you know, I, I, I think that I look at it and I do kind of think, boy, this team would be a little, would make a little more, a little more sense with Jason Tatum and that, because that's a clear hole that they kind of have mm-hmm. in, uh, in their lineup. But I will say, look, I'm watching a series here right now between the Rockets and the, and the uh, jazz where it's like people doubt it all, se- you know, coming into the season, can Chris Paul and James Harden, two primary ball handlers, can they coexist? Can they get along? Can- is there enough touches for everybody? 
So they're, when it comes to Ben Simmons and Markel Fultz, if they're willing to work together and, and they're in a little bit different position because James Harden and Chris Paul are established all-star players. They've been paid lots and lots of money. They're not out to try to prove anything other than the fact that they're winners. And so they're on, they're on lockstep in that regard. Um, Markel Fultz and Ben Simmons are trying to make careers and that can get a little bit trickier when, you know, they're starting to play for a second contract and trying to make their name, trying to make all-star teams. Can they coexist and can they get along and share it to the level that somebody like Chris Paul and James Harden have? Wait, before uh, before we get over to that series, Ian's already speculated that he gets to go home after after this game four between Boston and Philadelphia. Royce, do you think that series is over as well? I think I think the Sixers win. I think the Sixers win game four. Sixers win game. Four. I think they've been too they've been too close to not close one out. And and like Ian said, I mean, look the. The comedy of errors that they had at the end of Game Three, like the Sixers have nobody to blame for that loss other than themselves. As great as Brad Stevens' ATOs were, and as great as Al Horford was, and but like the Sixers, just you know, what were the, I think they were up five with two thirty to go. I think is what it was. Uh, they had every opportunity to win that game, and should have won the game. And I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and say I think the Sixers are better than the Celtics because I think that, that, that there's a factors to suggest that the Celtics are better because they're up 3-0. But I do think that the Sixers, the, the, the margin is very, very thin between these two teams. And as long as the Sixers don't just quit, I think that they're going to win game four. Yeah, Han, I, wanna, I want to uh, clarify. My prediction was less of a prediction and more, and it was more of a, a wishful thinking. Oh. I, 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 uh, selfishly and, and for my family's sake, I would like to get home and, and not go to to Boston for Game Five. But I do think Philadelphia will win a game here, and I think they'll win tonight. And I think we'll be in Boston, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, on Wednesday for Game Five. Uh, but not that anyone cares. I will be going home between four and five, no matter what happens, because of <laughs> the David Fisdale uh, press conference, I think, will be Tuesday. So I'll be there in New York. I'll have a chance to hang at home, and then I'll head up to what I think will be uh, game five in Boston uh, in front of a raucous TD Garden crowd. Uh, yeah, so, I, yeah. But I do think the Sixers are going to win tonight. My, uh, my prediction on this series has already gone down in flames after game two because I said Sixers and five. And... Uh, I, I would love to think that if any, cause no team has ever come back from down 3-0 in the NBA playoffs. If there was ever a situation where it could happen, the Celtics and Sixers are very close, but, um, as you guys have already outlined, the Celtics are banged up. Jalen Brown is not at a hundred percent and the margin of victories have been very close in games two and three. Like theoretically, this is the composition of a series where you're like, oh, I could see it coming back from down 3-0, but it, it, yeah, it's not going to happen. Trust the process of this series. <laughs> <laughs> um, Han, you just sent uh, chills down my back with you <laughs> suggesting <laughs> seven games. <laughs> Let's uh, let's turn over to, to the series you've been covering, uh, Utah and Houston. 
Uh, game two, was that just a, a fluke? What Houston just took their foot off the pedal? What What's going on? Because this I think series is like completely over now. I, I feel like game two was a little fluky. Um, because I don't feel like the Jazz have played all that drastically different in games three and four. Um, they just shot the ball really well. Like Joe Ingles made it. Joe Ingles shot, I think, 11 of 13 or 10 of 13 in game two. And a lot of those were contested, difficult shots. And he's gotten a lot of those same shots in games three and four. They haven't gone in. Um, Donovan Mitchell obviously threw out a complete clunker in game three. Uh, for the first time really in this postseason, truly looked like a rookie that was a little bit in over his head, especially with what the Jazz are asking him to do. And and I think the Rockets also, I, I think that they took game two a little bit for granted because they, they put it on cruise control about eight minutes into game one. And they had that one cooked and done because, and some of that was because the Jazz were exhausted. They just finished off the Thunder 36 hours before the tip off of game one. Um, then traveled basically, you know, three hour flight to, um, Houston. So the Jazz were a little bit mentally fried and the Rockets took advantage of that. And then I think the Jazz, and this is something Mike D'Antoni even kind of said was that, you know, they kind of, they kind of snuck up on him. I, I think the Rockets really didn't take him completely seriously in game two. Um, so, you know, I think, I think you're seeing that the Rockets are a better team because like even game four, like I know that the jazz got it down to five and, and they had a little bit of a chance with three minutes to go, but that game was 10 to 14, basically all the way through. And it felt so much closer for the Rockets to blow it open to a 30 point lead than it did, than it ever did for the jazz to come all the way back and take the lead because it is such a grind for the jazz to score. <laughs> it is like, like each bucket that they have. And maybe this just speaks to how great this, this crowd is here in Salt Lake city because they freak out over any basket, but <laughs> like, um, but like every bucket that the jazz score feels like this accomplishment of like, Oh, they got, they did it. They got it. In. All right. And like, then Houston comes back and it's like transition three, uh, you know, James Harden free throws and then another transition three. And it's like, oh, that was a uh, that was a quick 8-0 run in about 38 seconds while the Jazz have struggled to, like, engineer just something decent. So uh, I think you're just seeing just a better team beat a team that's just not quite there yet. And, like, there's not, that's not to say that the Jazz it's, – it's kind of similar, I think, to 76ers. You know, the, the trajectories are a little bit similar. The Jazz have a lot to be excited about. They've had an – they've overachieved absolutely – and I think that the way that they closed the season, I think, raised their own personal expectations and the way that they beat Oklahoma City raised their expectations. But I, this team just isn't ready yet. I mean, Donovan Mitchell, I think, is learning a whole lot, and he's going to be really, really good for a long time. Um, but, like, Rudy Gobert has been severely outplayed by Clint Capella in this series. And and I think that it, it needs to be a little bit of back to the drawing board for both Quinn Snyder and Gobert to figure out why that happened. And I think I, think I can tell you why some of that happened. is because Clint Capella is playing with James Harden and Chris Paul while Rudy Gobert is relying upon Donovan Mitchell, a rookie, um, to make him really effective in a lot of ways. Royce, the thing I'm curious about, and you've seen it up close, and I haven't. I've been watching from afar. Um, what what have you learned about Donovan Mitchell in this series? Because to me, kid is such a special player. Uh, just his his general approach to the game, I think, is is spot on. And obviously, what everyone has seen him do on the court. Uh, it just shows how special he can be. But, it, you know, his work ethic and his mental approach, just knowing the people around him a little bit, to me, is also also tells me that he's going to be a fantastic talent uh, for, for, for many, many years to come. And, and so many teams missed out on him in June. But what, what have you kind of observed about Mitchell in your time uh, during this series? 
He's extremely impressive, first of all, Ian. I mean, yeah. whether it's in press conferences, whether it's with his teammates, um, you know, obviously with the way he plays. I mean, the guy is extremely impressive. Um, I think one of the things about him that – and I think you've seen it play out a little bit in games three and four. Like, obviously the Jazz have a very distinct style. They play a Quinn, Quinn Snyder system is to, like, really move the ball side to side, create try to create advantages kind of on the margins, like get teams in space and, and you know, create catch-and-shoot threes or whatever it is, get players moving, attacking downhill, a lot of a lot of sharing, a lot of passing. I think what, what you're seeing with Donovan Mitchell is that, like, he's maybe gotten a little bit too good too fast for a Quinn Snyder system. And that, you know, the Jazz, one of they're, they're clearly, clearly affected by the fact that Ricky Rubio is hurt. Like, because that has changed Mitchell's role. He's been asked to do a lot of different things and, and handle the ball and create and, and you know, kind of, there's, there's clearly uh, some discomfort there for Mitchell. But I, I think what you're going to see, and this is how it's going to play out for the Jazz in the future, is that as, as Mitchell's star explodes and his usage has gone up in the playoffs, it's gone up in the last month of the season, how does Quinn Snyder have to kind of readapt and readjust what the Jazz do? Because I think you can see it with Mitchell is that he's caught a little bit in two minds where he's sitting there going, I'm trying – because." I, the dude is a team player. He wants to like fit in. You can almost see that he's resisting the idea that he is this budding superstar because he just kind of wants to be one of the guys. But like, poor kid can't avoid it. He's too good. He's gonna he's gonna be a star. Um, too bad for him. But like, I think that <laughs> I think that what you're gonna see what you're seeing a little bit is that he's kind of caught in this world of like I'm trying to play within the context of the team and the and the um, you know structure and the system. But like. I got to go get a bucket here. And I think you saw it a little bit in game four where towards the end of halftime, uh, close to halftime where he just got assertive and started attacking. You know, he obviously did it against Oklahoma city with 22 points in the third quarter of game six. So I, I think Mitchell is like, there's, he, he's, there's going to have to be, and then that's going to be something in the off season. The jazz are going to have to figure out is that he's, he's kind of growing outside of what I think the jazz want to be or what they have been. And they're going to have to kind of readjust that because I think that's what they need in this series. They need Donovan Mitchell to go out and get him a bucket. And I think that he's kind of like, but wait, I'm not supposed to, I'm supposed to, supposed to swing it to the corner here to Joe Ingles. Right. Uh, you know, so like, you know, I, I don't think I'm supposed to go take this two dribble mid range jumper, but like, mm-hmm. I think that's sometimes what the, the jazz need him to do. To me, that's a pretty good problem to have the idea yeah. that this guy you drafted. He's too good. <clears throat> second he's round. too good for your team oriented system. <laughs> yeah. And you need to adapt to fit his, Strengths. I mean, that's a good problem for Quinn Snyder to have, especially because, you know, the way the NBA is set up that you would think that Utah is going to have Donovan uh, Mitchell in uniform for at least the next, you know, seven to 10 years. So good, yeah. good problem for Utah to have for sure. Uh, Royce, does this go to a game six or is this done? By- oh, man. Like this isn't just wishful thinking on my part. This isn't Ian Begley level wishful thinking. But this is <laughs> this is this one is over. I, I don't see any way that the Jazz and that is not to take anything away from them. And I, I just don't – I think it would require the Rockets sleepwalking their way through game five, which is – there's a potential to do that because if anything has disappointed me in this postseason, it has been Rockets crowds. Like they have just been really poor. Nice. So maybe, maybe like that. They, they they just have not been good, and it's been really disappointing. <laughs> um, for a team that, I hope that, that, that gets picked up by a local – uh, Rockets. Oh blog. man, Rockets messy sports. The fans come after you. <laughs> they, they can come after me. They just have a bit. Like, look, if you're not going to fill up your lower bowl in a playoff game, that's on you. And yeah, I've heard, the, and I've heard some people have told me that it's like because there's a lot of the oil companies owns a lot own a lot of bulk tickets and stuff. And like, I get that. That's fine. But like, give them away. Be, 
you need a full you need a full lower bowl in the playoffs, okay? At the very least. Um anyway. But so outside of outside of just like a complete malaise because the Rockets are not invested in game five, which I can't see that happening because if they lose game five, guess who's gonna have a lot of people talking about it? Chris Paul. And the last thing that he wants anybody talking about, because he even referenced it himself last night, up three one, that you know, that that he's he's been in this position before and it was kind of awkward for him to even try to discuss it because the team that came back on him was the Rockets. <laughs> but um <laughs> but uh yeah, I, I think that I think that the Rockets have kind of asserted themselves, illustrated that they're just the better team in this series. If you go on the road and you beat a team in that environment, I mean that the and you beat them twice and you beat them kind of impressively twice, I think you've basically shown that you're quite a quite a bit uh there's there's quite a margin between the two teams. Finally, because there's still one series left in this in this playoffs. Um, Ian, the Warriors and the Pelicans was interesting for a hot second, and now they put out what did they call it? The Hampton Five, and everything <laughs> is right with the world again in Warriors Land. Um, is there anything? Are there any strong takeaways other than just the Warriors' inevitable march towards at least the conference finals? That's what it seems like to me. I can't come up with a stronger takeaway than that. And just this is kind of what we all expected to happen. Uh, you know, going back to talking about this season uh, in the preseason, this is what we all anticipated. The Warriors kind of cruising, maybe dealing with a little bit of uncertainty here and there. Uh, you know, one or two pieces of controversy, an injury or two, you know, Steph Curry specifically, but by and large, getting to this place where they're kind of on autopilot going into the conference final uh, against the Houston Rockets. And that's what we think is going to happen. You talk about that, that what was it? The Hampton five, like the lineup they used to, that used to be the death lineup and then yeah. Kevin Durant signed. So, you know, that lineup was insane. I think they outscored new Orleans uh, almost by 30 in the, in their 18 minutes mm. uh, in that game. And, it, and defensively, like we talk about how tough that lineup is to guard, but, Defensively, they're pretty special too. I don't. I think New Orleans shot under thirty percent with that lineup on the court, and that's a problem for Houston. I mean, that's that's what's going to keep Mike D'Antoni up at night when he's getting ready. You know, presumably getting ready for this this next series because you know Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Draymond Green, Andre Iguodala, Clay Thompson. That's a tough lineup. I don't. I mean, I don't care what five you can put on the court to combat those guys it's going to be difficult and uh and good luck to D'Antoni and the Rockets trying to counter that fight yeah forgive me if uh if you disagree Royce but like not to take anything away from the Pelicans because they've had a terrific season despite the injuries that they've had to overcome and things of that nature the most interesting thing out of this series has been just like general off the court periphery issues like that knucklehead the other day that made just a dumb, um, frankly, a dumbass remark about Draymond Green on Twitter. Do you, oh, have, yeah, any, yeah. Do you yeah. have any advice for the Twitterati, the people on Twitter that want to 
get their takes off, shoot from the hip. <laughs> Do I have any advice for them? Yeah. Never tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Think before you tweet. If you're not smart enough to like under somebody, I, I don't remember who it was. Somebody had a piece of advice a long time ago with Twitter, and I've tried to deploy this myself, sometimes unsuccessfully. But like, if if at any point. When you've typed out your tweet and it's like you're about – you know, you give it one little quick read through to make sure you don't have any typos or at least I hope you do. Most people don't. But like if at any point during that, just like the smallest little thought in your head jumps in there and says, should I tweet this? Like don't do it. If don't like, if, do if, it. If you're not wholly, completely, entirely committed to that tweet, don't do it because like <laughs> it ain't worth it. Like it just ain't worth it. It's so true. I mean I've sat with a – tweet that i've wanted to publish not not about the knicks or anything it's usually in response to uh, a, f- a person yeah. on twitter who said something out of line i've literally sat for like 10 minutes going back and forth like man i really want to say this in the worst way and then i just don't end up sending because it doesn't end up being worth it but usually just err on the side of caution uh because these i think people sometimes maybe they don't forget the world can see these things it doesn't you know you may have five followers but if you say something totally outlandish everyone will see it so just uh operate with uh with a sense of caution yeah it's like um uh i had a conversation with a player's family member about that that sort of thing ian and they were telling me that uh they they will often type out a tweet a response kind of read it back to themselves and then just backspace it out and it just like it's therapeutic (laughs) yeah no there is something to that that's like just type it out and you're like okay at least i got that off my chest i just didn't have to tweet because there's plenty (laughs) of times i do the same thing where i'm like oh man i'm gonna i'm i'm burning this person down Uh, 